Often, churches flatter themselves with the title, New Testament Church. Their members are proud of the fact they go to a New Testament church. Pastors make it their goal to grow New Testament believers, to build a New Testament church. I used to think I wanted to be a part of a New Testament church until I read Paul's New Testament letter to the church at Corinth. For the Corinthian Christians were indeed a New Testament church, yet this was a church fraught with problems. This was a church divided, so much so that their members were suing each other in the pagan courts. Blatant immorality was tolerated in this church. God-given gender roles were being ignored. Communion had become an excuse for gluttony. Spiritual gifts were being abused. Foundational truths, like the resurrection of our bodies from the dead, were being questioned. And worse of all, the worst thing was that love had taken a back seat. Hey, I want our church to embrace New Testament truths. I want us to see New Testament expansion and display New Testament power. But if being a New Testament church means being like the Corinthians, then forget it. The city of Corinth was a wicked place. Among the Greeks, the phrase, playing the Corinthian, was synonymous for drunkenness. Prostitutes, in fact, were called Corinthian girls. Corinth had a sordid reputation. In fact, every night in the city of Corinth, 10,000 so-called priestesses left the temple of Aphrodite on top of the mountain, the Acropolis overlooking the city, and they would hit the streets and alleyways to prostitute themselves. The tricks they turned raised funds for their temple. See, sexual immorality wasn't just tolerated in Corinth, it was institutionalized as part of their religion. On his second missionary journey, Paul spent 18 months in the city of Corinth. Immigration had swelled the city's population to a half a million people. And with the influx of so many immigrants came every lewd and wicked practice known to man. And yet in this den of sin, the Holy Spirit used the Apostle Paul to build a vibrant and a spirit-filled church. In fact, it was after Paul left Corinth that the problem started. Rather than the church influencing Corinth, Corinth was influencing the church. Paul is now in Ephesus when he hears of the problems going on back in Corinth, and he pens a letter of correction. You know, it's been said, boats are made to be in the water, but you don't want water in the boat. And likewise, the church is made to be in the world as a witness of our Lord Jesus. But in Corinth, the problem is that the world had gotten inside the church. Well, we read about it in verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. Now, Acts chapter 18 speaks of Paul's time in Corinth. You remember when he arrived, he held meetings in the Jewish synagogue. And there the leader of the Jews was a man named Crispus. It was interesting, he converted to Christianity through the witness of Paul. Crispus was replaced in the synagogue by Sosthenes. And this Sosthenes was determined to stir up trouble for Paul in the church. In fact, Sosthenes brought Paul before the city council on grounds of sedition. His plot, though, backfired. The proconsul 
realized that this was a religious matter and outside his jurisdiction, and so he dismissed the charges. In fact, the civil leaders were so upset with Sosthenes for wasting their time and using them to vent their hatred that they had Sosthenes beaten instead of Paul. Now look at how Paul addresses the Corinthian church. He writes with, guess who? Sosthenes, our brother. Apparently, Sosthenes had concluded, well, if you can't beat them, you might as well join them. And he had converted to Christianity as well. The Jews in Corinth were having a hard time keeping a leader in charge of their synagogue. All of the rabbis were converting to Christ. Well, Paul and Sosthenes, they write, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. You know, over the centuries of church history, people have applied the term saint to elite, special believers who demonstrate extraordinary acts of faith. But originally, every believer in Jesus was called a saint. The word means set apart or dedicated. Reminds me of the story, once two brothers, they stole a neighbor's sheep. They were caught and they were punished. They both were branded on the forehead with the letters ST for sheep thief. One brother was so embarrassed he fled town to hide his mark of shame. The other brother took responsibility for his crimes and despite the stigma stayed in the community to rebuild a good reputation. Years later, a town newcomer Notice the ST on the man's forehead. He asked another local what it meant. The fellow replied, well, I'm not sure, but I think it means saint. All of us should live so that we're known as a saint. Well, Paul writes to the saints in Corinth, but also to those who are in every place. I guess that includes Lilburn and Snellville and even Stone Mountain. In every place. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace, they're the twins of the New Testament. They always go together, grace and peace. It reminds me of the Minnesota Twins, being baseball season and all. You know, the baseball team is named after the twin cities, Minneapolis on one side of the river and St. Paul on the other side of the Mississippi River. And spiritually speaking, here are two twin cities set side by side, grace and peace. Enter into God's grace and you'll know his peace. Grace extends to us a right standing with God. Peace is the byproduct of that grace. You can't have peace without first getting God's grace. It's grace that ushers us into his peace. And so Paul wishes them grace and peace. And then he continues his greeting in verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance, in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. And I love Paul's phrase here. They were enriched in everything. Do you know this is what Jesus wants to do for you? He wants to enrich your life. He wants to enhance your life. He not only takes away our sin, but he adds to our lives. He fills us with good stuff. He says, so that you should 
come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. God enriched them with spiritual gifts. That was one of the things he added to them. God blessed this church with a wide array of spiritual gifts. We'll talk about them in detail later in the book, but God gave them gifts of healings and words of wisdom and discernment and unknown tongues, and on and on we go. And Paul says that it's through these spiritual gifts that the testimony of Christ was confirmed. You know, think of it this way. The atmosphere in which we live always contains a degree of moisture. But we realize it most when it rains. And likewise, Jesus is always among us. We live among him. He is with us and in us. But his presence is confirmed most when we experience spiritual gifts. Later in this book, we'll learn that the Corinthians were misusing and abusing spiritual gifts. But remember, never does Paul suggest they stop using them. He tells them to straighten out their abuses. But always, we need to use the spiritual gifts. The presence of spiritual gifts were viewed as the testimony of Christ. And then verse 8 speaks of Jesus' second coming, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And notice the reason we were called by God. The reason God has saved us by his grace. It's so that we can have fellowship with his Son. You know, Christians do good works. We serve the Lord. We grow in our relationship with the Lord. But those aren't the reasons he saves us. The reason Jesus saves us is that he wants us to have fellowship with God and with God's Son, Jesus. And if you walk in that fellowship and just enjoy the grace of God and allow the Lord's, the blood of Jesus to continually cleanse you of all sin, one day, in the end, In the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, you and I will be found blameless. What a hope we have. Well, in verse 10, Paul tackles the first problem in this church. Now, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind, and in the same judgment. You see, the Corinthians had become fragmented. This was a church that lacked unity and harmony. He says, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Apparently, a sister in the church, this woman named Chloe, or at least someone from her household, wrote to Paul and told him of the cliques that had formed in the church. There were tribes within the tribe. That was not a good thing. Now realize, it's okay for us to have a circle of friends at church, as long as it's not a closed circle. I ask you to think tonight about your circle. Is it a closed circle? Or is the emphasis of your group bringing new people in, not keeping people out? When it's an us versus them mentality, it becomes deadly. We can have a circle of friends, just make sure it's an open circle. Problems occur when church members polarize, 
when one group thinks that they're better or more spiritual than another group, the family of God then becomes a family feud. Certainly, there are issues worth fighting for. And on those issues, I will lead the charge. But all too often, churches end up majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors. So often, we fight over picky and petty and piddly stuff. Christians divide over baptism. Do we dunk or do we sprinkle? I mean, do you think it really matters? Let's just get you baptized. Do we take communion weekly or do we take it once a quarter? Do we read from the King James or from a newer translation? Do we sing hymns or praise songs? Do we use a good old-fashioned steel pulpit or a wooden one? Come on, this is trivial stuff. I read the story of Paul Louette's Paul took a terrible fall. He punctured a lung, broke a few ribs, was bleeding internally. He was rushed to the hospital, and there, while lying in the emergency room, Paul heard two doctors start arguing over who was going to put the tube in his crushed chest. The argument became a shoving match. One doctor threatened to have the security guards remove the other doctor. Finally, poor Paul managed to cry out, Please, somebody save me! Two other doctors had to step in to settle the dispute. And sadly, this can happen in the church. God brings hurting people through our doors, but we're too busy trying to outdo or upstage each other to provide them the help they need. Well, that was what was occurring in the church at Corinth. Verse 12, Now I say this, that each of you says, Oh, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. You see, the church had divided around celebrity preachers. They had gravitated toward their favorite teacher. One group shouted, oh, Paul, we're into Paul, man. He's cool. We like Paul. He preaches liberty. You guys are the legalists. The second splinter disagreed. They said, we like Apollos. Oh, he unlocks the deeper truths. We're more intelligent than you folks. A third segment, they countered, we follow Cephas, old Pentecost Pete, he's our guy. You guys study the Bible all the time, but man, we, we just flow in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then the final schism, they thumb their nose at all the rest. Who needs a human teacher anyway? We take our orders from Jesus alone. But Paul writes to them all. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And of course, the answer to all those questions was no. The church is the body of Christ. Jesus died for us. We're baptized into him. The main thing in the church is Jesus. And we should always keep the main thing the main thing. Once I read the story of a man who killed his wife and ran her body through a wood chipper to destroy the evidence. As repulsive as that sounds, this is what the Corinthians had done to the body of Christ. That's right. Their divisiveness had put the church through the chipper. And it's sad when the church fractures into cliques that think they're right and everyone else is wrong. In Corinth, the pride of its members attached to celebrity preachers. Some were of Paul, others were of Apollos. 
Pastors and Bible teachers are given by God to point us to Jesus, not to become a point of division. Jesus is our rallying point. He's the commonality that's greater than our differences. Jesus should be our unity. I love the quote by Edwin Markham. He drew a circle that shut me out. Heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had the will to win. We drew a circle that took him in. Make sure when you draw your circles, when you have your circle of friends, they're about bringing people into the body of Christ, not pushing people out. Let's seek harmony and unity in our fellowship. Well, Verse 14. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. And here is a verse that gives me great hope. Paul confesses that he couldn't remember who he'd baptized. He'd lost track. And it's so embarrassing when I go up to someone and ask them, hey, have you ever been baptized? And they reply, Pastor Sandy, don't you remember? You baptized me. I don't remember. While in Corinth, Paul had baptized only a couple of believers. Apparently, Paul suspected what might happen later on. Thus, he guarded against divisions over baptism. Hey, Paul says, I never baptized anyone in the name of Paul. I didn't even baptize people very often. Baptism is no big deal. It's certainly not a reason over which we should, we should divide. He goes on and he writes in verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And this is interesting. For here, Paul distinguishes between baptism and the gospel. Notice. Obviously, in his mind, they were separate issues. And this is important. Since there are Christian denominations today, like the Christian church and the Church of Christ, that teach the necessity of water baptism for salvation. Yet if this was true, it's hard to imagine Paul being so cavalier and so nonchalant about the subject. He says, I didn't baptize any of you. I came to preach the gospel, not baptize. Apparently in his mind, the gospel and baptism were two different things. You remember John chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 tells us that not even Jesus baptized people. His disciples handled that duty. Baptism is our response to the gospel, but it's not included as part of the gospel. It's not essential to salvation, for sure. The rite of baptism is important, but it's not essential. Well, Paul preached the gospel, and not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Paul's teaching wasn't full of abstract theories or philosophical ideas or academic arguments. He heralded the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul declared a brutal reality. When the Corinthians heard him speak of the cross, there would have been an initial repulsion, an initial resistance. Roman crosses were bloody and barbaric. Crucifixion was rated R for violence. The cross was indeed a harsh message to preach. And Paul says he didn't try to soften the blow. Rather, he proclaimed boldly, Christ crucified. That's what sin deserves. That's what the love of God was willing to suffer to save us. 
Paul allowed that the message of the Christ, the message of the cross, he preached it with his whole heart and with great zeal. In fact, Paul allowed this message to sort of punch us right in the nose of our own sensibilities. He shocked us with the message of the cross. Verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Remember, the Jews were impressed with power. All their heroes were powerful men, Moses and Samson and David. They were mighty warriors. The Jews loved power. The Greeks, they were into philosophy. Uh, Philosophical arguments, all their philosophers stood on Mars Hill and argued back and forth. They, they were into wisdom. And the cross was an affront to both, to power and to wisdom. That the Almighty God would subject himself to death appears foolish, even weak in the eyes of men. God went out of his way to save us in a way that insults the sources of our pride, both strength and wisdom. He says, for it is written, and here Paul quotes Isaiah 29, verse 14, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. In essence, God packaged his glorious salvation in a brown paper sack. I mean, rather than appeal to human tastes, the cross mocks our values. It seems like a mistake, like a defeat. That God dies, that appears foolish and weak. This is not the salvation that man would have proposed. Remember, the Greeks valued wisdom. The Jewish heroes all showed strength, and the cross appeals to neither wisdom or strength. It comes across foolish, and it comes across weak. God worked in a way that contradicted human values. You see, the cross forces us to humble ourselves and to come to God on His terms, not our own. Verse 22, for the Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Again, the Jews were attracted to power. Greeks were impressed with wisdom. Christ crucified appealed to neither. To the Jews, a martyred Messiah was a stumbling block. The Greek word was scandalon or scandal. The cross was sheer scandalous to the Greek, to the Jews. It was almost blasphemous for them to think that God was nailed to a cross. See, if salvation had come through a great act of strength and valor and courage, the Jews would have been saved. They would have accepted it. If salvation were due to academic achievement, the Greeks would have been saved. They were into wisdom. But the cross of Christ is all about sacrifice and love and faith. It's about God doing for mankind what we could never do for ourselves. 
Thus, salvation comes to humble hearts who put their simple faith in the plan of God. He says, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In other words, the cross is God's secret weapon. Brains and brawn and beauty bow before God at the cross. He chose to save us in a way that defied all three. To mankind, the cross was foolish and weak and utterly shameful. But to us, those that have seen it for what it is and have bowed before God, it is the power and the wisdom of the Almighty. Once it was a seminary, it was founded by godly men. And they had a stone arch over their entrance. It was engraved with the words, we preach Christ crucified. And that they did. Yet in time, ivy grew up over the arch until the greenery covered the word crucified so that the arch read simply, we preach Christ. Well, over the years, the arch, the ivy continued to grow until it covered up the word Christ. And today, the arch simply reads, we preach. And this is what has happened to the modern church today. We've gone from preaching Christ crucified to just preaching. We've lost our confidence in the cross of Jesus, and thus we've lost the power and the wisdom of God. Somewhere along the way, the church has chose to sanitize Christianity, clean up the blood and gore, make Christianity more palatable to human tastes. We've moved away from the cross of Christ. We've emphasized Jesus' good works, his wise teachings. But it didn't take long for Jesus' parables and miracles to become controversial. So now the church just preaches. They tell cute stories and anecdotes. And this is why today's Christianity lacks power. We've forgotten the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The cross mocks our values. It shocks our senses. It attacks our pride. And so does the church. For the church consists of folks whom God has called out of the world. But rather than call the rich and famous, God has filled his church with relative nobodies. And as proof, Paul points to the Corinthian believers. Verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. The Queen of England was asked once how she converted to Christ. She replied, I was saved by an M. person scratched his head. He said, what do you mean by that? She said, I'm thankful God said not many noble rather than not any noble. She was saved by an M. Now you get it. Yeah. But not many. The Queen of England might be the exception, but not, not many noble come through the door. Not, not many wise, not many brilliant, not many strong. In my, God has gone out and filled his church with the down and outers like you and me. He's gone out and he's chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, the weak things of the world. 
He says in verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. God chooses the simple, not the smart, not the brilliant. He chooses the weak, not the strong and mighty. He chooses the humble, not the noble and royal. And why does he do these things? The answer is in verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. God wants all the glory to go to him. His salvation is of mercy, not merit. You know, today people still admire wisdom and power and privilege. And that's why God chooses the cross, for it's an affront to all three. And that's why he's chosen the church. For the type of people God chooses also baffles our reasons and undermines our notions of power and turns upside down our concepts of rank. He's taken simple folk like you and me and made us his children, God's kids, king's kids, divine royalty. God chooses not the smart but the simple, not the mighty but the frail, not the upper crust but the down and out. He wants to make sure that every knee bows before him and that no flesh glories in his presence. You could say that our great God uses the bottom of the barrel to show that he's on top of the world. Verse 30, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And here he quotes Jeremiah chapter 9. Jesus is our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. You remember Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. They state this. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, nor let the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. What a fitting verse to quote here. All that we are and do and ever hope to be is because of our Lord Jesus. To Christ be the glory. Well, chapter 2 continues. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God, now, notice Paul stays consistent with his theme. God makes choices, and he works in ways that deliberately mock our pride and force us to humble ourselves. He's talked about the cross. He's talked about the church. And now he turns to the courier himself. Paul speaks of his own ministry as an example of how God works in ways that are contrary to smarts and strength and status. And in chapter 2, Paul describes the methods of his own ministry, how he relied on simplicity of speech and the power of the Holy Spirit in his sharing of the gospel. Once a church, was, uh, a church had a painting of the crucifixion right behind the pulpit, right in the middle of the stage behind the pulpit. The pastor was a big man, and so when he got up to preach, he would block the view 
of the scene behind him. One Sunday, the pastor was absent. And in reference to the pastor, one of the children asked his mother, Mom, where's the guy who stands so we can't see Jesus? Yeah, ooh. Paul always tried to avoid that being said of him. Rather than rely on his oratory skills or his keen insights, Paul's goal was to point people to Jesus. A pastor's worst mistake is to use the pulpit for self-promotion or to show off or to point people to himself. Don't ever block anyone's view of Jesus. Verse 2. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, as they say, timing is everything. And here the timing of Paul's writing may help us with its interpretation. Paul came to Corinth immediately after his visit to Mars Hill in Athens. You remember there he tried to reason with the philosophers there on Mars Hill, but with very little success. He could have come to Corinth with a different strategy. He realized that the arguing philosophy didn't really work. And so rather than argue philosophy, when he gets to Corinth, he now wants to proclaim the power of Christ crucified. And so he writes on, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Paul didn't rely on his eloquence and his intelligence when he got to Corinth. In fact, he made a point of being plain when he preached to the Corinthians. He preached Christ crucified, not himself amplified. And yet miracles flowed through this trembling little specimen of a man. It was obvious to everyone who saw him that Paul's power came from the Spirit of God. It was a woman named Helena Majeska who was a famous actress at the turn of the 20th century. Once at a party, she was asked to perform. And so she presented an amazing oratory in her native tongue of Polish. The crowd was riveted to her every word. It was passionate. Her presentation was powerful and emotion-packed and soul-stirring. It was later revealed that all Majeska had done was recite the Polish alphabet. Hey, there are preachers I know who impress you with their Polish. They just don't say anything. They can say nothing better than you've ever heard it said before. Paul had waxed eloquent among the Athenians. And where did it get? Got him nowhere. There were very few conversions. I'm not saying he made a mistake in Athens. There's a time and a place for philosophical argument. But I think Athens taught Paul a huge lesson. That at the crux of a person's salvation is Christ crucified. A person can have all his intellectual questions answered. But if you don't face the cross of Jesus, that person remains unmoved. On the other hand, a doubter can come full of skepticism and be shaken to his or her core by the power of the cross. I'm just saying the crux is the cross. And this is what we need to share, emphasize in our sharing. The power is in Christ crucified. Not in our fancy words or in our brilliant arguments, but it's in the truth of Jesus Christ and his cross. 
When Paul came to Corinth, he was weak physically, and he was drained emotionally. Constant opposition had rattled him to an extent. Fear was threatening his faith. But we read in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, that while in Corinth, God came to his rescue. God spoke directly to Paul in a night vision to encourage him and to assure him of his protection. In Corinth, Paul didn't come across powerly, powerfully and persuasively. He preached simply. He preached Christ crucified. And it was the Holy Spirit who demonstrated great power. Well, Paul reminded the Corinthians of his style and its purpose in verse 5. He says that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Paul grew weary of the wisdom spouted by this world. He learned to trust in God's power over human wisdom. Man's wisdom surely comes to nothing. It fades and ultimately fails. He says, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. See, God's wisdom has never been conventional thought. Men don't think God's thoughts. God's wisdom is a mystery to man's mind. Think about it. Strength through weakness? Where do you come up with that? Wisdom through foolishness? Life through death? Victory through defeat? This has never been the theme of man's wisdom. The paradox of the cross is illogical to man. It's a mystery hidden from man's mind. That mankind knew nothing of God's wisdom became apparent on the day that the Jewish scholars called out for Jesus' blood and ordered his execution. Well, verse 9 quotes from Isaiah 64. But as, as it is written... Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. And usually you hear those words at a funeral. It gets applied to the wonders of heaven. Eye has not seen. And heaven will be wonderful, trust me. But I believe this verse speaks of life right now. God loves to surprise us with his wisdom. And with his insights. He has blessings prepared for you and me. Eye has not seen. Ear has not heard. The things that God has for, you, for us. He has blessings prepared for us right now. But they can only be discerned by his spirit. What we've experienced to this point pales in comparison to the things God has for you just around the corner. If you walk by faith. For it's through his spirit that God conveys his blessings to us, verse 10. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. Imagine this. God is broadcasting amazing things for your spiritual eyes to see, but you've got to be tuned to the right spiritual channel. The broadcast is going on right now. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard the things that God has for you. But are you tuned in to the channel? 
If your thinking is stuck on material concerns, if that's all you're thinking about is work and play and so forth, if you think on merely a physical level, you'll miss out on the truths of God's Spirit. This is why we need to be spiritually minded people. We need to tune into God's channel. He says, for what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Realize God is known on the spiritual level. Tonight, your body language and your facial expressions might communicate an interest in what I'm saying. But I'm not really sure. You could be looking at me with an inviting facial expression and all, and at the same time be thinking about tonight's episode of Survivor. I don't really know. Only the spirit of a man knows the mind of that man. That's what he says here. And likewise, only the spirit of God knows the mind of God. That's why if you want to know God, you need to cultivate a friendship with God's Spirit. The mysteries of God are hidden from the mighty, but they are available to minions like you and me through the ministry of God's Spirit. He says in verse 12, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. Have you ever had an urge to pray for a friend, to pause and pray for a friend? You ever had an urge to do that? Have you ever been compelled to go out of your way to speak to a stranger about Christ? These kinds of inner urges can come from God's Spirit. Sometimes we forget we have received the Holy Spirit. If you're in Christ, you have received the Holy Spirit, and thus you can expect his spirit to be active in you. God has blessings for us and for others that are freely given to us. The Holy Spirit's not inhabiting you to go dormant. You can expect him to be active in you. You can expect urges and impressions and the gentle nudge and the still small voice to lead you and guide you. One of the tremendous thrills of the Christian life is to be on the receiving end of one of these divine communiques. God tells you to go and speak to that person. At first, you're scared. You feel a little bit foolish in doing it. You're not completely sure your feet, what you're feeling is really from God. But you step out in faith on it, and you act on the impulse. And suddenly, you see God's hand at work in a wonderful way. And when this begins to happen to you often, your life turns into an adventure. God begins to use you in incredible ways. God has given us his spirit. We should anticipate these things to happen. Verse 13, for these things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And here's how you learn to recognize the voice of God's spirit. You do so by comparing spiritual things with spiritual you compare the inner urge you're feeling with the nature of Jesus that you're learning. You ask yourself, is this something Jesus would do? Well, if it is, then go for it. It's probably from the Lord. You compare the still small voice that you're hearing 
with the Bible that you're reading. Are the two compatible? The Spirit authored the Scriptures. They will be. They won't contradict each other. Thus, if they are, you act on it. You go for it. You compare what you're sensing spiritually with what your spiritual gift or calling might be. Does what the Spirit say harmonize with where God has already guided me? If so, certainly, you're walking in His will. And you compare your prompting, the prompting you sense, with the spiritual priorities that God has given you. Do they fit? Again, we compare spiritual with spiritual, and we grow in our understanding of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We learn to identify these spiritual subjectives by scrutinizing them up against the spiritual objectives. You learn the voice of the Holy Spirit by reading your Bible. The Holy Spirit wrote it. That's how you learn His voice. We know that God never contradicts Himself. Thus, if your inner prompting doesn't reflect Jesus, or if it contradicts His Word, then we know it's not from God. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, Paul's been talking about the spiritual man. This is the person that's in tune with God's Spirit. But the natural man is limited. He or she lacks the Holy Spirit. This is a person who doesn't know Christ. The mind of man, unaided by God's Spirit, can't explore the things of God. Thus, the natural man is deaf to spiritual communiques. He or she is earthbound in their deliberations. They're limited to their five senses. A whole dimension is closed off to the natural man. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. And since the spiritual man has access to resources unavailable to the natural man, he or she will be doubted, will be misunderstood at times. This is why it's so frustrating to share what God is doing in your heart with a lost friend or with a spouse who doesn't know Jesus. It doesn't compute for them. You're dealing with an element of life that they're, that they're not privy to. There's a sensitivity that's not available to them. Verse 16 for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And I love the Phillips translation of verse 16. It says, who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? Incredible as it may sound, we who are spiritual have the very thoughts of Christ. What a concept. We have the very thoughts of Christ. You know, don't ever think that you have to turn off your mind and enter a trance-like kind of state to communicate with God's Spirit. That's not how God usually works in our lives. God has given us a mind, and He's given us His Spirit to enlighten our intellect and through the Holy Spirit, our minds become exposed to God's thoughts. We see life from heaven's perspective, and we tackle problems with God's wisdom. Can you dream of a bigger blessing than we have the mind of Christ? Can you think of a bigger blessing? I can't. The unbeliever has lost his mind. He's not in his right mind. But we have the mind of Christ. This is why we need to be led by the Spirit. Well, we need to walk 
in the Spirit. This is why we need to be the spiritual man and access the thoughts of Christ. Paul is discussing three types of people here. The natural man who doesn't know God at all. There's also the spiritual man who's in contact with God's Spirit. He lives in and is led by the Holy Spirit. And then in chapter 3, Paul is going to bring up the carnal man. This is the man or woman who knows God and yet lives as if he doesn't. And we'll study the carnal person next week. And there